Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day in a still rather deserted city of Westminster in these current times of COVID-19, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Michael Octagon. Mike is the co-founder, co-founder and owner of Gecko Agency Limited, a creative digital agency based in Edinburgh, Scotland. Mike, very very warm welcome to you and thank you very much for joining us on the air on this fine day. Hi Scott, uh, great to be here. Likewise uh, Mike, it's uh, fantastic having you um, on the uh, the programme and this conversation really, it comes with the purpose of trying to establish your take on leadership. So if we just take that word leader in isolation first and foremost and just explore that for a moment, what does that word actually mean to you and how does it resonate? Leadership to me, um when I think about leadership, from my perspective, it's probably three kind of key words that kind of spring to mind. Um, the first one would be definitely accountability um, in terms of the book stops with you. Um, it's up to you in terms of taking responsibility for um, the people you're trying to lead. Um, and very big after that would be humility. Um, I suppose, you know, just realizing that you're, you're definitely not the most important person in the room. Um, especially when you're trying to work with other people, um, you have to listen. You have to offer trust um, and and help people feel comfortable in terms of being able to speak with you in a, you know in a candid and safe way, I suppose. Um, and I think beyond that is being authentic. Um, don't try and be anybody else. Um, and that's probably for me what leadership would mean. I think that humility and authenticity is incredibly um, important, isn't it? Because taking people with you, it's a very important term issue in uh, being um, a leader, of course. Um, that renders you to have a really, really strong team and um, essentially harness that collective vision. And being able to take people with you is helped by being on an equal footing with them, showing that humility, showing that you're not going to expect those around you to do a task that you wouldn't do yourself. And I think that the sorts of people who are essentially imposing that form of culture on their businesses are the ones that are really going to be reaping the benefits at the moment, aren't they? Considering that, you know, we are in a very difficult situation with COVID-19. There's uh, been a lot of adapting within business and those that have really um, brought the best out in their employees will be reaping the benefits at the moment because they'll be willing to go above and beyond for them. A hundred percent. And, you know, the key to the authenticity is that if you're not, you get found out fairly quickly. <laughs> so um, it's important for your team, the people around you, that they can actually trust, um, you know, to the very core of what you're trying to achieve and how to get there. And if they can't trust that, then no one's going to follow you. So you're not really a leader from that perspective. Mm, I think that's absolutely right, Mike. And um, if we think about the fact that, of course, you've um, owned um, Gecko Agency since um, it opened um, up in uh, 2003, um, do you think that your leadership style has changed at all in that time as you've developed? Or is it something that you've sort of kept fundamentally the same in terms of principles like that humility, like that transparency? Yeah, I think think that's a very good point. The principles have always pretty much stayed the same um, in terms of really just how how I am, how, how I'm kind of how made really um, is helping to work with people in terms of kind of a I want to say coach per se but definitely trying to foster an environment where people don't have any fear of failing um, kind of really understanding for myself 
going through those years, it, you're always learning. So you have to have an element of risk there to actually learn certain ways. So I would say tactics might change in certain managerial kind of elements that have learned to um, be better at over the years um, has changed, but the guiding principles have always been the same. Um, and that's really to try and harness no fear, um, give people room to fail um, and learn. Um, and that, that's kind of the way I've kind of, when I've had leader people, uh, people who I felt were good leaders in my past careers and different jobs and various things, I think that's what happens. You, you pick up those little bits and you think, I like that, I resonate with that. And you kind of pick up those characteristics as you go along your professional career. It's a hugely important point, isn't it, about learning. We are in a constant process of development, aren't we, in a sense? Even when we are leaders, we're not the finished product, as it were. And you're absolutely right. Um, people do need to be encouraged to be able to um, suffer setbacks and not be afraid to fail because embracing that as a learning curve is ultimately how we develop, isn't it? And also, you mentioned uh, very importantly uh, just at the end there, Mike, about um, willingness to essentially learn from others and take elements of leadership from them and maybe understand what's good and what's bad and then integrate that into your own style. It's important to lead us to remember that because we're not lone wolves, are we, in a sense? We can reach out to other people, we can have mentors, and we can look to others for inspiration, can't we? A hundred percent. You know, sometimes you see the picture book, you know, the Steve Jobs, these kind of laser-focused people who kind of either drive people along with them. Um, it's kind of a bit of a misnomer, really, a bit of a red herring. You know, for any leader that's there, they have to have people behind him who have followed and um, and and helped for people to get along, uh, you know, along that path. So yeah, it, it, it's definitely a team game, and and as I start to say, full contact sport in that regard. And thinking about, of course, um, how you've developed your own leadership style, Mike, uh, who would you say, or rather, what would you say have been some of the big influences on you as you've uh, developed, um, be that people or just experiences? You know, when I think about it, it, it's really just down to the personal experiences I've had with past managers, people of um, who have run companies who I've admired, but been able to actually speak to and be able to have kind of um, been lucky enough to have kind of one-on-one. Um, engagements with um, obviously that you know, think of leadership, you know, you're in Mandela's of this world, Martin Luther King's, your Churchill's. But for me, obviously, just running a, a you know a, a boutique agency, it's looking for people who are a little bit more within reach um, and growing a company and getting a team on board, getting them engaged. Um, and you try and find support from mentors who are just ahead of the curve, people who've done it beforehand. That's probably where I'd say. I've kind of tried to absorb um, as much information as I can from that perspective. Um, there's also, you know, in terms of uh, development books and the like, uh, I, I really kind of resonated with a chap called Ben Horowitz, who was a kind of a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, but his book really kind of uncovered the hard things about driving a business and bringing a team with you and changing things. Um, and for me, that was kind of a, a real eye-opener because it's for the first time I saw people actually talking about what it was like in the trenches. So that was kind of comforting in a way <laughs> as opposed to just hearing about the story that always feels like it's unfolded for, for the major leaders. I um, think... So yeah, so that's... 
Yeah, you mentioned a lot of um, good uh, things uh, there, uh, Mike. A lot of fantastic names, um, of course, um, who are fantastic leaders in their own right. But also, rightfully, you say that in the business world, some of the people closest to you can be some of the most influential leaders out there, such as managers, mentors, those sorts of individuals. And I think sometimes that maybe we don't necessarily recognise that sort of leadership enough, particularly in the business world, because we do associate leadership with essentially visionaries. Um, we associate it with politics. We associate it with celebrity, for example. And we don't maybe recognise the everyday leaders um, as much as we should do. Is that something that you would agree with? 100%. Um, you know, I'm lucky enough to work with uh, enough companies over the years you get to meet different people who run businesses, you know, so different CEOs with different styles. Um, but you de- definitely recognize the businesses that have, you know, true leadership because um, you find yourself quite compelled to them yourself. I think that's right, Mike, um, certainly. And um, interestingly enough, um, one thing I was um, wondering is if you had the opportunity to go back maybe 10, 15 years armed with all of the experience that you have now, is there anything that you would do differently or would you just embrace the journey and the learning curves that you've sort of experienced already? Knowing what I know now, um, if I was to go back and give, you know, Mike advice 10 years ago, I, I'd say be, be bolder, be braver, put yourself out there more. Because um, I think there's an element there where you can see some people who you really admire um, and it's almost kind of the Wizard of Oz. You see this almost kind of holy and doubt person that you think, how, how I could never get there. And then you realize, you know, just talking behind the curtain, it's just a human being there working hard, pulling the levers. Um, so from that perspective, looking back is, yeah, just be more braver, more candid and, and, and reach out to these people and try and get as much information and knowledge that you can and, and don't apologize for it. I think you do have to show a certain amount of bravery as a leader, don't you? Be willing to try things. And even when you do, like we've said already, suffer one or two setbacks, just be willing to embrace that as a learning experience, of course. And if, alternatively, uh, Mike, you were also to advise someone from the younger generation who was maybe about to venture into a leadership role for the very first time, what sort of advice would you look to maybe give them? Um, well, following on from that, be brave, be bold. Um, you know, don't, don't uh, kind of, shy away from the things that are in front of you because uh, the, the stoic saying, you know, the obstacle is invariably the way, so don't kind of run away from it. Um, but having said that as well, is that just understand it's the long game, it's a marathon. Um, there's, there's no rush about these things, there's no time um, constraint. So that's probably what I would think is just take time, understand you're in it for the long haul and try and make decisions based on that. Uh, not necessarily the, the kind of the quick wins, because invariably the quick wins are kind of the things that stop you um, further down the further down the line. Um, and try and get a good network of people who you trust and mentors who are, who've kind of done it before. And ideally, whatever industry you're in, try and get people who are in, who kind of tasted exactly that journey, and befriend them. Take them out for lunch. Mm. Take as many people out for lunch as you possibly can amazing how many things I've learned just with that and taking it out of a, um, a kind of a professional setting. That's when the restaurants are open, of course. Mm. 
For sure, um, in that sense. Um, but I think it's um, it's great and sound advice uh, for sure, Mike. Um, we mentioned the name Nelson Mandela already today, and he actually once said, surround yourself with people who are better than you. And that ties into uh, that advice perfectly, doesn't it? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And also, quite importantly, you mentioned focus on the long term because being distracted by short term victories um, is going to compromise longevity. And I think that's also something that we're really seeing at the moment. Those businesses that have really focused on the long term, future proofing, having procedures and plans in place, they'll be the ones that are sort of more well equipped, if you will, to get themselves through this current COVID-19 crisis. And if we do just focus on that for a moment, uh, Mike, before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, in terms of the long-term future for Gecko. What do you envision for the uh, the next year as we hopefully move through this crisis out the other side of the pandemic and really begin to look to the future? Uh, well, luckily, you know, through COVID and the thing, how has that affected people's lives in terms of the day-to-day, um, the digital um, industry is kind of best place to help clients through that. Um, and that's the first thing that we did. We contacted our clients in any way, shape, or form if they needed any help, whether that was from understanding the tech, setting things up, how to communicate or market in, in a world where you can't actually meet and network. Um, that, that was for us there to be um, a, a guide, really. Um, and I don't see that changing over the, 12, the next 12 months either. So from our perspective, it's, it's pretty much more the same in terms of being ahead of the curve, helping people save time and pain in terms of how to use digital to help their businesses through this period um, and, and offer that in the best way that we can. Certainly sounds like there's a great deal of ambition there, Mike, for the future amid all of the uncertainty. And you're right, uh, technology is certainly going to play a uh, key role in um, that as we start to adapt to the new normal. And I think that as we start to understand over the next year or so what that new normal will look like, it would actually be really exciting from a listener's perspective to catch up and have you back on the programme just to see the kinds of initiatives that Gecko is getting involved with, because it's been very informative having you on the air with us today, for sure. Oh, absolutely. It'll be a pleasure. It would be um, one, a pleasure for myself um, as well, Mike, uh, certainly. And um, it's a shame we don't have uh, more time on today's programme. Otherwise, I'm sure we could discuss it all afternoon. But thank you ever so much um, for taking the time to uh, join us on the air today. It has been a real, real pleasure. And um, also, as I said, a really insightful experience. Most importantly, in the meantime, do take care and do stay safe as well with everything still going on. Because as everybody knows, we're definitely not out of the woods yet. Not at all. Thank you very much, Scott. Thank you. That was Mike Octagon, the co-founder and owner of Gecko Agency Limited. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet, and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was first elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 when he was anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? 
Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side 
effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods. Uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK, we, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required Uh, Those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible, proportional 
balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings 
uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think... It would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business. What will happen if um, there's a cyber attack? What happens if there's an energy shutdown? Sh- uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm-hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well.
So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, 
when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. So Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need 
an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of, us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become 
the electoral government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blanket. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.